Welcome to Chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. Sir Christopher Wren and St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. Christopher Wren is a famous architect. And after most of London burned down in a big fire, he was commissioned to rebuild the city cathedral. And Christopher Wren liked to visit the men who were working at the building site. But he doesn't visit often enough that they could recognize him. And so one day, Sir Christopher Wren walked over to a group of men who were cutting stones for the cathedral. And he asked the first one, what are you doing? And he said, I'm cutting this stone to three feet by two. And Christopher Wren nodded his head and went to the second stone cutter and asked, what are you doing? And this stone cutter said, I'm making tuppence an hour or something. Okay. Sir, Sir Christopher Wren got to the, the, the third stone cutter and asked, What are you doing? And this man stopped what he was doing, drew himself up to full height, and said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. A sense of purpose, a sense of vision, design, can give dignity to work that is otherwise unappreciated, unrecognized, undercompensated, and hard. Put a pin in that. Your dean of students tells me that you've been working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians all semester. And so I suspect you're aware by now that Ephesians divides into, into two broad sections, right? First, from chapter 1 until chapter 3, verse 21 or thereabouts, you have the, the theological section, right? In which 
Paul presents the plan of salvation, the saving works by which God accomplishes the salvation of sinners in Christ by grace through faith and for his glory. And after that, roughly chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the letter, you have the practical section in which Paul is guiding the church's response to the God who has accomplished their salvation in Jesus Christ. But Ephesians doesn't just divide into two sections. Paul organizes those sections, if you noticed, in a particular order. The theological section precedes the practical section. The practical section follows on and indeed follows from the theological. And even to my darkened mind, this organization suggests at least two significant points. First, you can write this down, Christian theology is relevant by definition and not by our design. Now, if Paul were out just to teach people how to live, and to some extent he is, after all, he spends the second half of the letter working on it, then why would he spend the first half of his letter writing about the plan of salvation, God and his works? The answer must be that theology is essential for understanding how we're supposed to live. It's the platform, our way of life, flows from our understanding of God, of creation, and our place within it. The central concern of Christian theology is theos, God. And that's why Theologians have traditionally called the doctrine of God theology proper or first theology. For the Christian theologian, which is a long way of saying the Christian, creation and all the creatures are always in second place. We see creation in its true proportion. We see ourselves rightly only illuminated by the light of God's presence. So the only true God, who is the object of Christian theology, makes a claim upon us and upon all creation. The identity of the only true God implies a particular way of life that is appropriate to those who truly know him because he is Lord. God's nature and work need not be made relevant with respect to his creation. That's not the preacher's job to make the word of God relevant. The word of God is relevant, and it's for the preacher to help the congregation see it. 
And so true theology is always relevant by definition because it's concerned with the God who is Lord over all things. Point two. Life has a basically theological character. Just as theology can never be detached from life, life can never be detached from theology. Fundamental questions. Who is God? Who am I? What are we all doing here? What does it mean to live a good life that is pleasing to God? Those questions and God's answers can be suppressed in unrighteousness, They can be obstinately ignored, but one way or another, they're always answered. The way that we live in the world will always reflect our most profound commitments about these big questions. Because humans, says God, are my image. And therefore, our lives are always making some kind of claim about God, always imaging God, whether rightly or wrongly. And so the question is not whether we'll live theologically, whether our lives are tangled up in these big questions, but the question is whether we'll live according to a true theology, whether we'll anchor our lives in the revelation that God has so graciously provided to us. The structure of Ephesians, then, aims to clarify the truth for for Paul's believing audience so that their lives and ours can be brought into alignment with that truth so that the life of the church would bear reliable witness to the only true God. Now, uh, a guy named Marcus Bart wrote a commentary on the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it's 464 pages long. And I've I've gone on quite a while already, and so for our purposes, I'm going to make this brief. We can head up or uh, recapitulate, see what I did there, first half of Ephesians, the the, the theological section in, in three points. One. God's eternal purpose is his glory. From before the very beginning, God has always planned to glorify himself in creation. And God gave humanity a very special place in his plan, where his image, his idol, in the temple of creation. And it's through humanity that God has purposed to receive creation's worship, to fill the earth with his glory. Creation exists, we exist, for the glory of God. God's glory is is the highest goal. There's nothing better or more noble for us to seek or for God himself to seek. And if God were to seek some lesser end and abandon the pursuit of his glory, God would not be good. And God is good all the time. All the time God is good. It is his nature. And therefore God is always seeking his glory. 
And God does not advance his eternal purpose, does not seek his glory haphazardly by fits and starts. No one catches him by surprise. No one forces his hand. He's working in all things consistently according to his all-encompassing plan in sovereign freedom and love. And he's chosen us, marked us off as his own, adopted us as heirs, redeemed us, forgiven us, and lavished upon us the riches of his grace. He's claimed us as his own, stamping us with the seal of his spirit, who is the pledge of future glory. God's eternal purpose is his glory. Second, rebellion is humanity's universal condition. God is not haphazard. We do not catch him by surprise. No one forces his hand. And this makes it all the more surprising, shocking, scandalous, really, that God has claimed us. All humanity, the Jews and every species of goy, has entered into a state of rebellion against God. We are God's enemies. We're God's enemies. We didn't merely inherit a debt that we couldn't pay. We weren't born on the wrong side of a cosmic boundary line. It's not happenstance. We're not victims of circumstance. We render service to other so-called gods, other spiritual powers who seek to displace the only true God as the object of first theology, as God proper. Other princes who've risen up in rebellion against the sovereign Lord. Humanity's rebellion against God is not incidental. It's not just a mistake. Your sins are not just mistakes. Paul says that they flow from our nature. In other words, we're not sinners just because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is an expression of a corruption that's deep, deep inside us, radical to the human person. No one needs to coerce us into sin. Our heart and hearts are set against God's glory. Rebellion is the desire of our hearts. Sin comes naturally to us. Our treason is spontaneous and, in a very narrow and unhappy sense, totally free. Now, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It is his nature. And because God is good, God is wrathful. God is totally opposed and finally incompatible with anything wicked and will set his creation free from all evil. We're rebels guilty of cosmic treason, sinners by nature, down to the stony hearts at our core. And so the goodness of God is incompatible with us in the final analysis. One must give way, and it will not be the Lord who is God over all creation. Point three. Christ is a gracious conqueror. 
God doesn't advance his purpose haphazardly by fits and starts. No one catches him by surprise. No one forces his hand. And from before the very beginning, God has always planned to glorify himself in creation through his human image. So... When he chose us, marked us off as his own, adopted us as heirs, redeemed us, forgave us, lavished upon us the riches of his grace, it was while we were yet sinners. It was while we persisted in hard-hearted rebellion against God. It was not just apart from, but actually in spite of our works, because our works testified to our sinful natures. We walked according to the way of this world and the prince of the power of the air. The power at work in the sons of disobedience. God saved us by grace. Which for Paul means not just that it was at God's own initiative that he made the first move. Not just that he showed unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it. But that God loves his enemies. In Christ, God has overcome our rebellion and wrested us from the service of false gods, but he hasn't done so only by superior power, although he has that. Instead, he overcame the hardness of our hearts. We're not compelled to render service to Christ in any particularly narrow or unhappy way. But we do so freely because we've seen that this God, loving to enemies, gracious to sinners, is absolutely worthy of our allegiance. God has taken the willing servants of rival gods and used them to proclaim his own superiority to the powers and principalities that vie in vain for supremacy over against God in heaven. We no longer walk in the ways of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, energized by the spirit now at work in the sons of the disobedient. No, instead... We walk in the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do according to the will of Jesus Christ, our head, and energized by the same Holy Spirit who empowered Paul to proclaim the gospel to the Ephesians and incidentally raised Jesus from the dead. He's working within us to accomplish immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine because it's through us, sinners and rebels now united to Christ Jesus as the church, his body, that God is glorifying himself to all generations forever and ever. Now, during your last chapel address, you address the section of the text where Paul makes an important pivot from the theological to the practical. He turns from recounting the saving works of God to directly address the church, saying, I urge you, therefore. Earlier this year, I received a call from a once-and-future Rosedale student. And he was planning a sermon series for his home church built around Ephesians chapter 4. And he asked me if I knew of a good introduction to Ephesians chapter 4. And I said, Ephesians 1 through 3. 
your homiletics professor and I like to grouse in the coffee room, also known as the mail room, about the old Mennonite one-two punch. Do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this. And I've made a commitment, and I hope that by the end of this chapel service, you make it too, that I will never tell people what they need to do for God before I tell them what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. I will order the, or honor the order of apostolic teaching. I'll keep first theology first, like Paul does. I urge you, therefore, who remembers, when you reach a therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. Paul's instructions to the church are a big therefore. They're a conclusion following from the claims about who God is and what he's done. Because of God's grace, because of his loving favor toward enemies in Christ, because this is the foundation of your life together as the church, because you're redeemed sinners who have every reason to be overflowing with gratitude for your standing before God, because God has freely chosen to glorify himself through you forever, put up with one another, says Paul. Things are not what they seem to be at first in the darkness of your sinful mind. You're not just cutting bricks to two feet by three. You're not just earning tuppence an hour. You're not just putting up with your roommate. In a world that tells you to pursue dignitas, the power to dominate, live with humility, and gentleness, which are not, as perhaps you have been taught, Ephesians, Americans, virtues for women and slaves only, but the means by which Jesus Christ, God incarnate, conquered sin, death, and the entire world. Embrace the shackle, the bond of peace that unites you to your brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Paul has embraced the shackle of his imprisonment for Christ's sake as an opportunity to advance the gospel in Caesar's house in the curious way that God does advance his purposes through humility and gentleness. The God of Psalm 68, you learned last week, has indeed descended to conquer his enemies and did indeed rise in glory, taking with him many captives as plunder from among the enemy's ranks. But the captives that he plundered, that's you rebels together with all the church, are not just prizes to sit on Christ's heavenly shelf. Your gifts, which, Paul says, Christ turns around and gives to men. You are living monuments to God's grace, given by God to one another as tokens of God's love for sinners. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, whatever. At every stage of the church's development, for every Christian occupying every kind of role, 
This is true. God's purpose is unchanged, and his pursuit of his purpose is unswerving. He's glorifying himself through the body of Christ, fitted and held together by its ligaments, by its bonds, building itself up in love. Love is in the bonds. Love is in the ligaments. Things are not what they seem. Paul is not a begrudging prisoner of Caesar, but a willing prisoner of Christ, who is sovereign over all history, including Caesar and his empire. We're not divided, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, but one body in Christ, one people of God. We're not just cutting stones, earning tuppence an hour. We're helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral for the praise of God's glory. And so today, if you'd open your Bibles, if you have them, or your phones, if you didn't surrender them to the dean, chapter 4, verse 17 and following. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you heard when you learned about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. To put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Today's section begins with another therefore type of word. So, so I tell you this. The body of Christ is the work of God fitted together for his glory in the ligaments and bonds. So, don't live like the Gentiles. Don't, as the Jews of my home state of New York would say in their fantastic Yiddish, be a goyashakaf, a Gentile-headed person, a fool. Don't live any longer like the nations who do not know the only true God, who do not know that they're building St. Paul's Cathedral or that they're supposed to be. Their thinking is futile, deprived of vigor and life, destined to accomplish nothing because they're separated from God, who is life itself. Their hearts are hard, obstinate, calloused. They're insensitive both to the glory and worthiness of God and the horror of sin. And because they're Goyashikov, They have given themselves over. They have betrayed themselves willingly to sensuality and to every kind of impurity and to every kind of thing that separates one from the presence of God. A better translation than the NIV might have greedy in verse 19. They're modifying this action so that the Goyashakup, the Gentile-headed, are greedy for every kind of impurity. They can't get enough 
They gobble it up. But by the grace of God and no wisdom of your own, that's not how you are now, even though you used to be that way. If indeed, says Paul, you've learned to know Christ, hearing about him and being taught in him. The truth is in him, says Paul, not in yourselves. So you were taught to put aside that old way of life, the Goyesha Cup way, to put aside the old way of being a human, of imaging God in the temple of creation, and to put on the new man. Not just a new start, you know, you crashed your car and you go buy another car of the same kind and this one's not crashed. Kainos. A new kind. A new kind of humanity. This is not just a change of clothes after you've been wandering in the filth of sin. It's a new way of being human. And this new way of being human is not just sitting there inside you, waiting to be discovered. It's the kind of humanity that comes from the truth which is in Christ. It comes from outside of us, as the Reformers would say, extra nos. No less than your salvation, this new and truly human gift of life comes from God, given in grace to his enemies. And if indeed you have been heard and have been taught, if in, this, this righteousness and holiness is already yours. It comes from the truth that is in Christ alone. Verse 25 and following. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with their own hands. That they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave his life up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such person's idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Therefore, therefore, because you have received the truth of Christ, because God has clothed you in a new kind of humanity, do this, not that. Fortunately, the Galatia Cup, who uh, used to teach the class on Ephesians, just left Rosedale. And so you might have a shot at a slow, patient, and rewarding study of this passage. Uh, But what can we say in general about Paul's instructions here? I think too often the world looks at Christian ethics and the church looks at Christian ethics like two lists. On one list, you keep track of all the things you absolutely can't do. On the other list, you keep track of all the things you absolutely have to do. Success in the Christian life amounts to keeping both the lists updated and just generally keeping your nose clean. And I can understand why people might get that impression, especially if they're reading this passage from the letter in isolation. But if they're reading it in isolation, they don't know what the therefore is there for. But you indeed heard and have been taught, and I've made sure of it. You understand God's purpose. You know what Ephesians 1 through 3 is about. You know that which God seeks through the life of the church. You're in a position to help others see why things are on the list to begin with. These are not just lists of random prohibitions and commands. Their direction for the stonecutters who are building up St. Paul's Cathedral. Members of the body, united in the spirit by the bond of peace. On the do not list, we have sins that strain at the ligaments, pulling the well-fitted body out of joint. Lies, slander, sexual unfaithfulness, seething resentments, theft instead of help for the one in need, quarreling, unclean words. Speech that is not beneficial for building up the body, but instead tears at its unity. The behaviors on the do not list belong there, along with many other behaviors that are not explicitly named, because they do violence to the body of Christ. And if you know what you're about, Christian, you're in a position to recognize those behaviors when they surface, even if you don't have the list committed to memory. The do list, you might notice, is a bit shorter. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving to one another. Live in love. But in each case, the do commands are tied directly, tied back to the central claim of the theological section, aren't they? You do these things because God in Christ already did these things for you. Forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Live in love just as Christ also loved us. Remember my preaching commitment. Don't, people, don't tell people what they have to do for God until you've told them what God has done for them in Christ. This is why. If the, the truth of the new humanity, that humanity which comes extra in us, outside of us, in which we put on by the grace of God, 
If that new humanity is in Christ alone, as Paul says, then the church's way of life cannot be separated from the work of God in Jesus Christ. First theology. This isn't a free-floating ethical system. This is the leadership of Christ, who is head of the body, head of all things for the church. This is Christ's rule made manifest in us through the Spirit, who's working within us to do immeasurably more than all we ask and imagine. That's why Paul says we can be confident that no person who does these things has any inheritance among those whom God has freely chosen, marked off, called, adopted to inherit the kingdom of Jesus. And I'll tell you this, it's not because God doesn't love and save sinners. In fact, Paul has made it abundantly clear that God only saves sinners, that we're saved in spite of, not because of our works, and that God, who's gracious to love his enemies, alone gets the glory for that. It's very much the point. Rather, it's because such actions as could be described as immoral, impure, or greedy, practiced in in such a persistent and unrepentant way that we must acknowledge we're dealing with an immoral person, an impure person, a greedy person. These things give testimony that this person is not clothed with new humanity in Christ. And Paul says we can be confident in this evidence so that we can draw useful distinctions and cut through the deceptions of the enemy. Verse 6 and following. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for God. The church can distinguish clearly between the sons of disobedience upon whom God's wrath still rests and those Jews, Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, 
who have been adopted into God's family as brothers and sisters and sharers in the work of the Lord. The building crew for St. Paul's Cathedral. These good and helpful distinctions are essential to the mission of the church. God has bound us together to proclaim the gospel of Christ, of God's gracious victory over us in him, to proclaim that good news even to the heavenly realms, to Caesar's household, to the greater Columbus metropolitan area, to Mechanicsburg, to your family. We have not only seen God's light, but Paul has prayed and God has answered that that God would pour the spirit into our hearts and illuminate us, give light to the eyes of our hearts. We're lit up by God from the inside out. And this light should form a brilliant contrast with the Goyesha Cup world, revealing creation and its true proportion by the light of God himself, theologically. But such light can never, ever be misunderstood as moral smugness or religious condescension, at least if you've read and believed chapters 1 through 3. We're sinners saved by grace. And so the light that shines out from the church into the world is the light of morning breaking after a long, dark night. Awake, sleeper. Clear your clouded head. Stop hitting snooze, sleeping away the day in that grave you still call a bed. Christ has come, and he will shine on you. The light that God has put inside of us, the spirit through whom Christ dwells in our hearts, does not fill us with scorn, contempt for our unbelieving neighbors, nor even for our enemies. Because God did not show scorn for us when we were his enemies. The Holy Spirit is in us, lighting us up because God loves sinners. Because God has lavished his favor favor upon us, made it to overflow from us. And the grace of God overflows from the church in witness to his saving work. And it looks not like the drudgery of being shackled to your fellow church member. Instead, when we talk to each other, it looks like joy and singing, although not the kind of giddy and unfocused happiness that comes from wine. It's the durable thanksgiving that comes from knowing the grace of God, which is not dependent upon anything we do, but comes from him alone, in whom there is no shadow of turning. It comes from knowing the grace of God who has become our Father, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and who is present to the world today in us, in Christ's body through the Spirit. And so submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'd like to pray for you now. Lord, thank you for this place which you have set aside for the teaching of your holy word. That these people can be taught in Christ and by your grace receive the word And so leave this place with joy that cannot be shaken. With thanksgiving that has a source extra nos, outside of us, in you. I pray that they would leave this place and they would return home for break as those who have been filled with the light of your spirit and who shine the brilliant light of all that you've poured into them here at Rosedale, not with condescension or superiority, that would be impossible, but with the life and vigor of people who have good news to share who have many songs to sing and who have every reason to be thankful. And so it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.